My name is Peg Keenan, and I'm the Executive Director of ICA Food Shelf in Minnetonka, Minnesota, and you're listening to the Whistling Jesus Podcast. My name is Pastor Scott Searle. I'm the senior pastor at Shepherd of the Hills Lutheran Church in Edina, Minnesota, and you're listening to the Whistling Jesus Podcast. The Whistling Jesus Podcast is brought to you by Shepherd of the Hills in partnership with Augsburg University in downtown Minneapolis and the Riverside Innovation Hub. Each month, we will sit down with a community member from the Hopkins, Minnetonka area to talk about vocation, people, and community. Today, we are glad to be in conversation with Peg Keenan, the executive director of the ICA Food Shelf in Minnetonka, Minnesota. In our conversation with Peg, she mentioned that the number of families who are receiving help from ICA Food Shelf have risen from 400 families to over 2,000 families in just the past couple of years. Peg and her entire staff are searching for people who can come to the Food Shelf and help in a variety of ways. In our conversation today, you will hear the many ways that you can volunteer. If possible, we hope you can take some time out of your busy schedule to go and help those who are most in need. If any of the opportunities Peg mentioned in our conversation today are of interest to you, you can find more information and apply to be a volunteer at icafoodshelf.org. A very special thank you to Peg for sitting down and having a conversation with us. And of course, we are grateful for all that she does to help those who are most in need. We are also grateful for anyone who goes and helps and volunteers with the ICA Food Shelf or who donates their resources in other ways to this great cause. Welcome to the show. So, well, why don't we just start there? So why don't you tell us a little bit about what ICA does? So ICA, I'm reminded often when I talk to groups, they say, well, what does that even stand for? And it uh, was started in 1971. Uh, Five congregations got together. And it became Inter-Congregation Communities Association. Oh, my gosh. So that's why we say ICA. And um, ICA is, uh, has a basic mission of helping our neighbors in need. So it's very simple. And over the years, since 1971, then that simple mission has allowed it to do different things at different times based on the needs of the community. So currently, uh, the needs of the community seem to be in three areas that we're equipped to intersect with, and that is uh, making sure that we eliminate hunger, that we are helpful in making sure people are housed, and also making sure that uh, we provide employment support. So those are three programs. But another way we look at it is really seeing that we uh, stop an immediate crisis, that we build on um, stability for for families, and then we also promote long-term well-being. So under those three pillars, we have our programs, and our programs do something under each of those pillars. Mm -hmm. And how do people, what's the primary way you think that people find out about ICA or end up uh, coming to ICA maybe for the first time. Yeah, cool? for, for our clients, um, what we hear, it's often word of mouth that they heard from a neighbor or someone who lives in their apartment building or a relative, or they may be working with another nonprofit or or uh, Hennepin County, and they're referred to ICA as a, a place that can, can help them. Hmm. 
as far as uh, people who want to be involved in it, um, that may be the same way. Hmm. Uh, although we also uh, have what we call our mem membership representation from 36 congregations in the community. And as we interact with those congregations, um, parishioners will hear about ICA. And so they may want to also or need our services. And they also may have the ability to volunteer mm. and, and help in what we do. Mm. So what percentage of ICA is food service uh, being provided versus some of the other services that you also provide? What, so as far as the know? number of clients that are in those yeah. programs, we have probably uh, 5,400 that in fiscal 2019 used our food programs. That also does not include our school programs. We make those very low barriers so we don't ask how many kids, or we try to get an estimate, but it's really an estimate on the number of kids in our school programs, which are weekend bags, as well as some snacks for those schools that don't provide free breakfasts or, or snacks during the day. So food program is 5,400. If I look at our housing program, which also includes financial assistance, and that includes bus cards hmm. and sometimes gas. Uh, and so that's about 771 clients are involved in that. Uh, and then if I look at our employment services, there's about 100, of which usually every year 50% hmm. are able then to find a job based on the help they receive from hmm. our uh, employment consultant. So when you were saying those numbers, like the 5,400, are those unique users? Yes. So that's not doubling, that's nope. a unique? that's what we call unduplicated. Unduplicated. Yeah, that's okay. the term that yeah, nonprofits use, unduplicated. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, that's uh, each, each of those may have used us, uh, our food, they may have come uh, twice a month for the whole year. So that would be 24 uses mm -hmm. for their family or they may have only come once a year. We have about 15,000 to 16,000 food shelf services that we have every year. So if you divide that out on an average, that means people are using us three visits a year. Mm. Now, when we look at that, we have uh, about 40 to 45% of our clients um, that really only use us three times a year. Mm. And then we have another about 40% that use us nine to 12 months out of the year. And those are people also that maybe will be with us long-term. Uh, we have a lot of people that have used us for over five years that uh, seniors are good examples or people that have either physical or mental health issues that they will not be able to be employed at a livable wage. Mm -hmm. And so they may be with us long term. And how you've been there for six years, right? Yeah. Is that about right? Yeah. And how have things changed? I mean, we've had a lot change societally and culturally yeah. and politically over those six years yeah. and recession in there. So right. how do you see how have things changed over those yeah. six years in terms of clients or otherwise? Well, or? I'll even go back just a little bit further just to do the recession, include the recession. But in, in 2008, um, we were at um, 469 um, 
households using us. You know, that's that was back in 2008. Now, last year, we had about 2,400 mm-hmm. households using us, and that equates to the 5,400 um, neighbors. But um, quite a quite a jump from just 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you think about that's. Um, yeah, how many years that is. So um, when when I first came on board in 2013, that increase in need had already occurred. We were seeing that. And we also knew that our model was a little bit uh, stale. We were providing food, but it was all prepackaged. And based on the size of your family, you got more grocery bags full of food. And our great volunteers would go through the the warehouse and they would pack those grocery bags and thinking about what would they want to serve. And and, um, in that, our clients got things that maybe they had never seen before or food that they would have no idea what to do with or that their family doesn't like to eat. And so at that time, uh, about 2012, 13 was the time where food shelves were going to what's called a choice model. And that means it looks a little more like a grocery store. So people could just go up and down the aisles. And again, based on the size of their family, uh, larger families got to pick more items within uh, about 20 different categories of food. And categories would be fresh fruits and vegetables, dairy, um, uh, canned meats, canned vegetables, canned fruits, soups, what we call sides, which that's the the um, oh, hamburger helper, <laughs> things like that, and uh, or pastas, things like that. So those categories, and people could select food within each of those categories. So uh, that's what we do now. We also do that with our home deliveries. So we have our home delivery clients who typically have some a physical reason that they can't get to ICA, that uh, they have a, a standard shopping list online with us, or not online, but it's, it's we have a shopping list that they've provided for us. And so our shoppers, our volunteers, and they shop as if they're that person based on that person's preferences. And every time the person asks for a home delivery, they can say, oh, I don't need any more canned beans. Instead, I'd like Cancor, or, or uh, if you have some plums, I'd love some plums today, or things like that. So it really, they also have an ability to alter that that order. Um, but so now we we really, most of our services with food are our choice model. Mm-hmm. And then to even go further then down the line. So if we started that in 2014, and it took us a year or so to get the hang of it, but it's just like a little grocery store. Um, and we can get about six people shopping at one time, but people call in for an appointment and they're given an hour and a half block. So I always say if the baby's napping, you don't have to come in the middle of the block. You can come at the end of that hour and a half. So whenever it fits your schedule, but uh, it enables people not to have to wait in our lobby Mm. very long. We uh, recently, about uh, a year and a half ago, started on a project called Super Shelf. And this was a project uh, started by the University of Minnesota Extension, along with the food group, which is one of the two food banks in our area, the food group of Valley Outreach, which is the Stillwater Food Shelf, 
and I believe some funding came from Target as well. But they put together a program that had the philosophy is how do we make the healthiest foods the easiest choices? So while we had at the time, we had our fruits and vegetables, big colorful displays and kiosks were in the back of our grocery area because it was easiest for our warehouse people. They didn't have to transport it very far. So it was in the back. Um, and Super Shelf experts came and said, oh, you need to pull that out front. Think about when you go to a grocery store, first thing you often see are those great fresh fruits and vegetables. And what they indicated to us that you will select 51% more of something you see in the very beginning than if you had seen it later on. The other thing that we did is, uh, and, and ICA was very lucky that actually Supershelf, when we first asked them to work with us, they were having grants that went with their work because it might need new signage, new shelving. You might have to invest really in being able to sustain the program because you might have to have more varieties of different food. And when I applied, they kind of called and they laughed and they said, oh, you guys, your food shelf is absolutely wonderful. You don't no. need our help. Oh, you're kidding. No. <laughs> and it was quite a compliment, of course. Right. But we said, no, we know that you know things that we don't. And so they agreed to come out and I said, just come out. We don't want a grant. We don't, you don't have to do much. We just want you to walk through and give us some of those pointers. What are those economic behavioral uh, changes that we can make. I mean, it's not, not economic, well, but those behavioral yeah, changes sure. that, that we can make that make it um, our clients see our healthy foods and select those. And so they did that, but they took a few months and we thought, well, that's okay. They're busy with all the real grantees that they're working <laughs> with. But then they came back in February and they gave us a complete analysis and they said they would work with us Again, no money involved, but they would spend the time and give us their expertise. So they helped us understand our signage better. We had signage in three different languages, English, Spanish, and Russian. And this gave us an opportunity to add Somali because we're having a growing Somali population in our communities. And uh, also to put the whole grains at eye level with the white pasta and the white rice on lower levels something that we probably all know is you put the non-sugared cereals at eye level. And so making some of those changes, we also get a lot of food from our local grocers. We call it food rescue. And we come to grocery stores every day, volunteers and staff. We have a couple trucks and we collect things that the grocers have as peak, usually fresh vegetables and fruit. They're peak at the store, but they are, um, um, good for us because we will move them within a day. Mm. So they'll be out to clients uh, within that day or the next. So so that whole super shelf, we became super shelf certified. It, we, we narrowed some shelving so it's easier for clients to pick things out. So anyway, that whole experience of our food shelf changing to a choice food shelf um, and one that is also making the healthiest choices the easiest choices has been a really great transformation for what we're able to offer our clients. So 
what are some of the ways that people can volunteer at ICA? What can they do if that ICE were to say, boy, I'd like to come and volunteer? Yeah. What, what are some ways or things that we would do? We, we have people that actually um, answer the phones because it is by appointment. So we have uh, four people every day, volunteers that are doing that. And those are for people who are going uh, to have a good phone presence as well as are able to handle computer scheduling. We have about 50 volunteers every single day at our KTEL site wow. that are working either in the front, what we call uh, client support, and what they're doing is they're hosts in the food shelf. And they're not only greeting people as they come in, they are also then uh, just positioned throughout the food shelf should there be any questions. They're helping restock shelves, and they're also checking people out. We also have a whole slew of people behind the scenes and some work in what we call our food room. And that's when the truck backs up to bring all that rescue food in. And so those boxes are unloaded and they, our volunteers will open up a box and the tomatoes are next to the strawberries or next to the celery, next to the cucumbers. And so in our food work room, we have uh, stainless steel tables and uh, separate boxes, each one labeled differently. So the cucumbers go to the left, the tomatoes are in front, the potatoes go down in the box on the lower level and and they uh, divide all that up. So then it either goes in our coolers or it goes right out into the food shelf. We also have people who are working with the non-perishable foods that come in from food drives and congregations and businesses that do, do food drives for us in schools. What we're looking for is to make sure that um, nothing's been opened and also checking dates on it. And people often say, oh, I'm, I'm getting rid of food um, from Aunt Maggie's pantry and um, can I bring it over? And we also we say yes, because we have these volunteers who will check it out. Food shelves don't go by the best buy, best sell dates that are on canned goods. We go, go by the USDA's guidelines. And the USDA has guidelines for different um, non-perishable products. Along with the people on the, the, uh, in, in the behind-the-scenes warehouse, people are also uh, moving product around. They're um, putting it out on the shelves in front. Uh, but we also have volunteers that are ones that do our home deliveries. And they do need background checks because they're going to be face-to-face -face alone oh, with sure. uh, clients, even though they just give the groceries at the door. They don't go in and, and put them away. The nice thing about that is also people can do a quick check on if that client is doing okay. Mm -hmm. uh, or if they didn't answer, they mm -hmm. would come back and let us know. Uh, and maybe we need to be concerned about letting somebody know mm -hmm. that uh, our, our client would, did not answer the, the door. So we have some people that do the home deliveries. We have some people that go out in the truck with our staff and they rescue the food. Oh. Or they may go on their own to the smaller locations like a Trader Joe's or a uh, Lakewinds Co-op because they only need their car for that. Sure. Um, we also have the opportunity, we do have special events, uh, some fun events a couple times a year that we love people who love to organize events. And whether they want to decorate or just generate ideas, if they want to be the greeters at an event, 
we have those kind of opportunities too. And one thing that we're just starting to uh, talk about getting off the ground is an ambassador program. We believe that our, a lot of our current volunteers and people who aren't volunteering yet may want to be a spokesperson for mm -hmm. us. And it might be even just sitting at a community event, the Raspberry Festival, mm -hmm. having a table there answering simple questions uh, about ICA. Or sometimes the schools have conferences and they want to have different nonprofits tabling, have a table and talk about their programs if there are uh, people at their event that want to know more. So um, thinking that that would be a great job for people who like to be out in the community and connecting and conveying the ICA message. Uh, you've been a community member for a long time. You've been yeah. at ICA for six years. Yeah. Um, and uh, how? So how did you end up working at how ICA? Did that and, uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you were on the school board. For, I was. Right. Yeah. And, so I I was in the community um, about twenty five years before I I started with ICA, and I had really done a lot of work with the schools starting out that PTA, <laughs> PTO mom, and being in a lot of things, but then starting to do some things with the district, being on different committees with their strategic planning and uh, other areas that they were looking for uh, community volunteers. Uh, as I had done that kind of thing, I also was doing some advocacy at the Capitol for education issues. Again, one more thing <laughs> to, to get to understand uh, schools. And when it came time to run a referendum for the schools, um, I was asked if I would do that. I ran their referendum and had a lot of volunteer help, obviously, and uh, but we were able to pass a referendum that gave $81 million over 10 years to the schools to help support mm -hmm. Uh, the programs as the financing from the state uh, was not keeping up with, with needs. So I've got a lot of experience there. And then when it came time for a school board election, I was called up and asked if I'd be interested in running. And I did think about it seriously and thought, well, gosh, I know about everything there is to know about the finances because I had been involved in the referendum and in doing that went to 80 different coffees with the superintendent and, wow. and got very conversant in talking about school financing. Um, but um, I thought, yeah, this that sounds like I've done a lot of different things in the school system that I should use my experiences to, uh, um, that I could help with being on the board. And so I was elected. And I just did one term, which was four years. And as those four years were ending, my uh, youngest, I have two kids, and my youngest was graduating from Minnetonka High School. And I, I just thought it was time for um, another person who had kids in the system uh, to represent uh, the needs of the community. So I started looking for a job. And now I had worked a lot on different boards, on nonprofit boards, uh, and done a lot of volunteering outside the school system as well. So um, uh, as I had a lot of nonprofit experience that way, I had never gotten paid for it. But this position came up at ICA, 
and it was it seemed like a great fit. It was my own community, and I have a, had a feel of the consistency of some of our community through Minnetonka schools, and uh, it it was something that. Um, while I had never been really involved in ICA up to that point, I thought, wow, I can really use my management skills. I had worked in business 20 years before. Um, mm-hmm. I had kids. You have an and MBA from St. Thomas. I right? have an MBA yeah. from St. Thomas, and I thought I can marry those business skills with my passion for nonprofits. And I think that's a really good um, combination because nonprofits really, I believe, need to think like businesses, much like I think congregations have. You, I mean, you certainly have a, a, a other aspects, but if you can't uh, handle the financing, the fundraising, the expenditure side of a, a nonprofit, uh, it can quickly get off course. And so how do you work with strategic plans and... and um, marketing your product, you know, going out to the community and say, why is it so important that they be involved in this organization? And so um, it seemed like a perfect fit. And I was very fortunate that the board at the time felt it was too. Mm -hmm. And so six years, I'm on my seventh year. Here we are. And uh, it's been a great fit, I think. And we've got a great staff of 20 people. Um, seven are full-time, the rest are part-time, and over 700 volunteers. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, and, um, and I th- we're, we're filling a need in the community that seems to be growing, um, which is, is the sad part. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, I'm curious, like how, what impact is sort of being in that position and sort of seeing uh, the need in the community, how has that impacted you? Uh, yeah. being in that role, right? I mean, most people don't have the chance to sort of see what's happening uh, yeah. sort of at that sort of level, right? I mean, yeah. I think lots of people have some idea that people need help in all sorts of yeah. different ways, but this is a really up-close and intimate look yeah. at what's happening in what's normally assumed to be, even Hopkins, mm-hmm. right? Hopkins, yeah. Minnetonka, yeah. a relatively affluent community, yeah. So how is how what impact does that made on you? Sort of well, for you? I I think it's realizing that while um, there are people uh, of of great means in our community, there are equally great numbers of people who struggle. Uh, people think of the western suburbs and they think of Lake Minnetonka, and we even see average incomes for our areas, and uh, that's not the world that I live in, working in ICA. In 2013, the Brookings Institution did a study of poverty in the Twin Cities, the seven-county metro area. And at that time, they found that the increase in poverty, the increase in the rate increase of poverty was increasing faster mm-hmm. in the suburbs than it was in Minneapolis or St. Paul proper that poverty rates were were um, greatly increasing in the suburbs. And that's certainly what we were seeing at ICA and continue to see. People obviously know that the schools are great. Uh, we serve Hopkins, Minnetonka, Excelsior, and some of the South Lake communities. So our two school systems are the Hopkins school system and the Minnetonka school system. And people want great schools for their families. 
Um, they they um, see advantages of living in a great little community like Hopkins is. Um, and uh, so people come here because of the great things that the Western suburbs have to offer. And yet, oftentimes, they're just making ends meet. Mm-hmm. And so what, what I see all the time is really that people are struggling, but they can make it. 94% of ICA's clients make 200% of poverty level or below. So from $0 to about 50,000 for a family of four. So somewhere in there. Now you say, well, 50,000. Well, first of all, <laughs> that's the top end of our of the people that we see. And so most people are making much less of that. But you think of if somebody is renting and maybe this is for a family of four, you're renting. And so you want at least a two-bedroom apartment. And in Hopkins, you may be paying between fifteen and eighteen hundred dollars. Let's say you add utilities to that, and just so my math is a little easier, I say two thousand. <laughs> so, so that's taking about fifty percent of your income. If you're at the highest end of that poverty level, that's fifty thousand, or excuse me, twenty four thousand dollars that you're spending just on your housing. Hmm. Um, there was also with Brookings Institution, they they did a study on a livable wage. Again, this is back in 2013 for the Twin Cities area. For an adult and one child needing some sort of daycare, it was $20.61 to be able to live, a child and an adult. Mm. Now, you think of what minimum wage is. And if people are making, you know, seven something up to even 14 or 15, which is what Minneapolis is trying to get at over a few years, you're still far below that for two people, a child and an adult. Mm. So, so what we see is that people's incomes are not going up as fast as housing costs. And again, people don't think about that in the Western suburbs, but um, those are our neighbors. And um, they usually, often, our neighbors are just fine that are struggling because they, they, they make ends meet and very resourceful, but then something happens. Maybe a child gets ill, and so now all of a sudden you have to pay for medication or your deductible on your insurance. Um, You have a car breaks down and you have to have it repaired and you weren't experienced, you you don't know where that's gonna come out of your budget. Well, you've got just a couple places, really. You can skimp on your food, right? Maybe you decide that you don't pay your utility bill or your rent, but that can only go so far. And that's where, where ICA can come in to help, that with our, our um, housing assistance, that if people have a solvable situation, uh, they can get the car repaired or they can pay that medical bill and then they can get back to their sustainable way of living, even if it is... Um, uh, at the um, at a poverty level, if they can get back to that, they can be fine until another disaster hits. But but and we can help them with that. Or what we would say is, come to our food shelf. A family of four 
coming twice to our food shelf, we did a comparison. We shopped and then we took that food and we said, okay, if we had to go to Cobb, what would it cost us? Mm. So coming twice, a family of four would get up to $650 worth of groceries every month. So just think if you could take that $650 and put it towards your rent or put it towards the car repair, you know, you, you can, you, you might be able to get back on track. So I think I think what it becomes more obvious every day is that there are um, uh, great families in our community that are just making it, and then something happens in their lives, and they're then all of a sudden struggling a little more. So you become really aware that we're we're great communities full of just wonderful diversity of of life, and uh, sometimes what that means is that. People need some assistance. Well, thanks. We're yeah. grateful for you, Peg, especially, yeah. and for all the work that I see it does. We really are. And grateful for us as Shepherd to be in partnership and for all of your work, not only with the food shelf, but also in housing and all of the other parts of Hopkins and Newtown. Well, so Shepherd of the you. Hills has been a, a great partner in this work, and, and as your congregation um, is really involved in the community and seeing what needs need to be met. and being part of the answer and being in there uh, to participate in making our community better for everybody. A very special thank you to Peg for joining us this month. Both Pastor Scott and I found her conversation quite wonderful. For more information, you can visit the ICA Food Shelf website at icafoodshelf.org. We hope you take some time to go and volunteer with Peg and her incredible staff. Next month, we hope you will join us as we sit down with John Schultz, superintendent of the Edina Public Schools. As always, please share our podcast with your family, friends, and neighbors. We always enjoy hearing from you and encourage you to comment on our show by emailing us at whistlingjesus at sothchurch.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy your day.